I'm going to do what I do often here is read the entire chapter. The second chapter of Acts is probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And yet, how many of us have heard the entire chapter? So that's what we're going to open with right now. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to follow along with me. And I will begin now reading the second chapter of Acts. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is that, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Don't you love that? <laughs> no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will, be, you will fill me with joy in your presence. 
Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on earth, on oath, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we all are witnesses of, of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who come, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property, possessions, to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm not going to lie, I've got enough here for about three sermons. It's all right, though. I want to go to lunch as much as the rest of you, so I should be done by noon. For those who are listening, it's only 9.15. Now, Pentecost is an annual celebration that was a Jewish festival held every year. It was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. It was a celebration, basically, of they call it the spring harvest, which is kind of a misnomer, but as you walk around and drive around this community where farming happens, you know that that already you can begin to see the the corn and the beans and the various other uh, crops beginning to emerge from the ground. And so Pentecost was an opportunity to basically celebrate that the growing season was underway. It was an opportunity to give thanks to God for the abundance. You know, you have to admit, if, even if you just plant a little garden in your backyard like my wife does, you know, there's a great sense of satisfaction after you put a seed in the ground to come by a week later and see something sprouting up out of the ground. It, it's comforting because there's a lot of faith involved with just putting a seed in the ground, isn't there? You put that little seed in the ground and then it's gone. You see it no more and you hope 
that it will rise up and produce fruit. And so the Pentecost celebration, Pente meaning five, is five weeks and a day after the Passover celebration, which is the first of three festivals that all Jews were required to celebrate in Jerusalem as they were able. The third would be the Feast of Tabernacles, which in effect is the harvest festival in the fall, celebrating the actual uh, bringing in of the harvest. It was a festival of booths, and all that meant really was, is if you can imagine going down to the farm market down by the train depot during the fall season and, the, and seeing all the booths set up with everybody having their wares out there, all the fruit of their labor. And so that was the celebration of tabernacles or booths. And it was from that abundance that they would give their tenth, their tithe to the Lord. And so it was an act of celebration for everyone to come with their gift to God to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple. So that's kind of the gist of it. Pentecost was a celebration like that. That's why there were Jews from all over the known world in those days in Jerusalem, people speaking all different languages. And they were marveling at the fact that these apostles from Galilee could speak their languages. And I suspect, though it's not said plainly, it's pretty much implied that they didn't just hear their own language, they heard it in a native way. In other words, it was not tainted with an accent or with a limited knowledge of dialect and things like that. They simply heard by the power of the Spirit voices that were so familiar to them that they might as well have heard their own mother talking to them or their own father. And yet from Galileans, I could really tear this story apart for all of its, I find, humorous stuff in it, you know, like that line about, hey guys, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. We haven't had a chance to drink too much. You know, I think that's funny. But it's also a statement of fact. So you can't say, no, uh, they're just drunk because their, their answer is, is no, they, that's impossible. So it's both humorous and factual. Well, another humorous and factual thing is that they considered the Galileans to be people who were well, not inferior, but not as sophisticated, you know? Uh, I don't know how else to say it, but it, it just means that in every community, in every uh, region, there are certain areas where people aren't considered as sophisticated. You know, Jeff Foxworthy made a great living for many years talking about rednecks, who were people who were just gloriously unsophisticated. They weren't dumb, they were just not worldly. And... Uh, this is what the impression was that they had of Galileans, so they were completely surprised that these folks not only spoke with the native tongue that they uh, seemed to have heard in their hearts and their minds, but they were just as amazed by the power of the words they were saying. And that's why I wanted to read the whole chapter to you, because there's, there's Peter. Remember Peter? You know, he's a regular working guy, runs his small business in uh, the region of Galilee around the lake there. He's a smart guy, but not, uh, not overly sophisticated. But, you know, church guy went every week to the synagogue. And, and this is Peter, who is speaking as a college professor of theology here. He's speaking on a level that is incredibly superior to anything we've witnessed from him up to that point. And so they're blown away by the, the expression of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the power of the Holy Spirit, then, is seen through the church. And that's exactly what the Acts of the Apostles is all about. In fact, the book of Acts could probably more rightly be referred to as the, instead of the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it opens with the Holy Spirit and it carries on throughout giving different examples of how the Holy Spirit transforms people and communities and even churches. And we need to understand that it's a continuation of the Spirit's work. Do you remember that when Jesus came on the scene to officially launch his ministry, do you remember the first thing that happened? He was baptized by John the Baptist, and as he came up from the water, the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now, we could talk about that in a theological sense, but perhaps at another time. The important thing to remember now is the Holy Spirit was as active in the Bible in the very beginning and throughout the story as the Holy Spirit is in the story of Pentecost. The difference is the way that it is experienced by the people. There's where the big change occurs. The Holy Spirit was active at creation, bringing order to the chaos. The Holy Spirit was active at different times, as you recall from a couple of weeks ago, throughout the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is active in John the Baptist, active in Jesus, active at times in the spirits of the apostles. But here at Pentecost, it's completely open to all who will receive. Now the Holy Spirit is entering into the lives of believers, even changing their nature, their spiritual nature. And this has the same effect on anyone who experiences the Holy Spirit as it did in the lives of the people we read about in the Bible which is probably why some of us are resistant to it, because it's a little scary to think that the Holy Spirit might do things in us that make us really uncomfortable. I can tell you, for example, I've never spoken in tongues. I'll even confide in you that I've prayed to God, if that's something I should be doing, Lord, can you make that happen? Because I'd like to know for sure whether I need to do it or not. And God's answer seems to be, you don't need to do that. Is there anyone here who's having trouble understanding me? Now, Wayne, just because your hearing aid hasn't been working very well lately. <laughs> you understand my language, right? <laughs> Thank you for letting me pick on you. I hope you didn't mind that too badly. I just wanted to have some fun there. If you can't hear me, it's one thing, but if you can't understand me, it's another. Why do we need the gift of tongues? The way they had it at Pentecost, well, in that case, there was a message that needed to be heard by a lot of people from a lot of different places. But you know what? That's not the case today. So I guess that's why that spirit has, uh, that gift of the spirit has been withheld from me. I haven't performed any miracles that I'm aware of, although I've witnessed lots of things that could be called miracles, though they were nothing like what we see in the Bible. They were much more subtle. I don't know how we interpret that, but I do know that the Spirit is alive and well in the church and that the Spirit is not the problem. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is as the Spirit always is and was and ever will be. The Spirit is God's very mind and heart expressed 
in any venue and in any person who would accept it. That the Holy Spirit is the person of God that is most accessible for us at this time in human history. And a spirit that is able to be with all of us everywhere at all times and in all places. So how does the spirit work then in the lives of the believer and in the church today? I found that one of the best ways to interpret that is through a hymn by uh, Charles Wesley and through the teaching of John Wesley. Now, some of you, I know, have misgivings about the United Methodist Church, and, and I don't blame you because there's certainly confusion in the church these days. But one thing I'm certain of is those Wesley boys knew how to do it. Those Wesley boys knew how to do church well, but in particular, they understood the Bible and its relevance. And their movement that led to what we now call the United Methodist Church and various other forms of Wesleyanism was an attempt to bring revival to their Church of England. And the revival they knew could only happen with the help of the Holy Spirit. And so I logically in the days of kind of history repeating itself, find myself going back to what the Wesleys originally did. And this is what they said. The Holy Spirit is the vital thing. John Wesley referred to himself as a man of one book. Anybody want to guess what book that was? The Bible. You got it. And John Wesley believed that the change that really brings about revival comes through the Holy Spirit. And his brother, who was a prolific hymn writer, had a way of taking what might take John Wesley two hours to teach and summing it up into a few verses of a hymn. And that's exactly what he did. And I want to share those verses with you as a way of explaining the work of the Spirit. You can even turn to it if you want. I believe it's number 606 in your hymnal. Let me see here. Uh-uh. I think I lied. I think I'm close. Where's my no I Six oh three. Thank you very much. Now there's a man that takes care of me when I need it. Thank you very much, Gary. Yeah, there we go, 603. Come, Holy Ghost, our hearts inspire. That was probably just a case of, you know, pastors like to raise the numbers just a little bit, <laughs> you know. How many we have in attendance today? Up that by at least three or four, right? Okay. Come, Holy Ghost, our hearts inspire. First of all, the Holy Spirit's not a ghost, but that was a way of expressing the word back in those days that we still have a lingering impact with. Come, Holy Ghost, our hearts inspire. Let us thine influence prove. Source of the old prophetic fire, fountain of life and love. So the first thing that Charles wants us to understand is that the Holy Spirit provides the proofs of our transformation. The Holy Spirit is the source uh, within us that demonstrates that we've been changed. Again, let me say, it doesn't mean that if you can't speak in tongues or work some sort of miracle that you 
don't have the Holy Spirit. It just means that the Holy Spirit will demonstrate in us things that inform not only us, but the world around us of our changed nature. That's why I told you in the first sermon for an assignment to go out there and look for signs of the Holy Spirit at work in other people. How many of you saw something in other people since then that you could identify as signs of the Holy Spirit? Seriously, raise your hands, I wanna know. I'm, it's, okay, so, all right, you all get an A. If you didn't raise your hand, we're gonna have a remedial class. All right. And this hymn writer, Charles Wesley, takes us right back and says, just like that old prophetic fire, here's, here's what he's talking about, a fountain of life and love. A fountain of life and love. You will see in the person who has been born again, remember that Peter told them at Pentecost, I, don't you love that part in, in the story that we read from, from the Acts of the Apostles, Acts of the Holy Spirit, where they hear Peter, they listen to Peter, and then in desperation, all these people from all these places, they look at him and they go, brothers, what should we do? I mean, they're desperate. Can you hear that? Have you been that inspired on Sunday morning lately? Now you don't raise your hands, okay? <laughs> I could, I'm not sure I could take it, but... <laughs> If only it were about me, but it isn't. It's the Spirit of God that we're talking about. And here's the thing. Can you imagine hearing something so profound to you that you found this compelling urge to plead with the person sharing it? What do I do with this knowledge you just gave me? What do I do with this? And what was Peter's answer? Repent of your sin and let the Spirit bring you into a relationship with the Savior Jesus Christ and change your nature. Be born again is what he's describing. Life and love. How does the Holy Spirit manifest itself in our lives and in the church? Through love. Love like God's love. The love that defies logic. Do you realize that, that spirit-filled Christians down in Texas right now have already forgiven or begun the process of forgiving? That's hard to swallow, isn't it? Now, this is not an opportunity for us to say, well, good, now we have a measuring stick that we can determine which, which Christians are real Christians and which ones aren't. Now, we can't do that. There's, there's, uh, in fact, I've just finished uh, uh, about halfway, I should say, reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, and it's, it's one of my favorite reads, so I go back to it regularly. And, and uh, you know, he points out that nobody can say, well, there's a real Christian. There's one I'm not so sure about. We can't say that about each other. The thing we can say is when we see the Spirit of God at work, when we see the Holy Spirit at work, that we can recognize. And so in the spirit of grace and love and mercy, there is the Spirit. Where there is grace and love and mercy, the Holy Spirit is present. In verse 2, he says, Come, Holy Ghost, for... Moved by thee, the prophets wrote and spoke. Unlock the truth thyself, the key. Unseal the sacred book. When you hear scripture read 
like I did today. Did you hear something today that you'd never heard before? Did something about that passage just really leap into your mind and, and suddenly there's an image there that wasn't there before? When you hear your pastor or your Sunday school teacher or a classmate or a person sitting across the table from you at the coffee shop, when you hear them speaking of scripture and the work of the Lord in the world and so forth, and suddenly your heart is inspired, maybe in a small way you're having that brothers what should we do moment. You recognize that that's the spirit? You realize it's the Holy Spirit talking? I've had a few people tell me lately because of Paul's departure and just kind of transitional conversations that occur whenever something as momentous as a key staff member moving on. You know, there's been conversation about how much this church has been through and how much has changed even in the last year. Where has the Holy Spirit been present in that and where was the Holy Spirit absent in that? See, I'm not here to cast judgment on the past. In fact, I've urged us to leave it behind, but I'm going to be the first one to tell you quite honestly, when you saw some of the most terrible things that this church has been through, would you agree that it was probably not the work of the Holy Spirit? Would you agree that the Holy Spirit was probably not being allowed, probably not allowed to be the prominent, preeminent, directive force? And when you felt revival start to come back into this church and in the family of God here, would you say that it's probably because the Holy Spirit has been uninhibited? Is this a fair assumption? You think you don't know what Pentecost is all about or what the Holy Spirit's really doing, but you do. You witness it all the time. And this is what this hymn writer, Charles Wesley, wants us to understand. He says, expand thy wings... Celestial dove, broad o'er our nature's night, on our disordered spirits move, and let there now be light. Oh, bringing light where there was darkness, bringing order to the chaos. Does that sound familiar? Would you like to know whether the Holy Spirit is at work in your church right now or not? Whether Pentecost is arriving at Shiloh or not? Has there been disorder and chaos and is there beginning to be light and peace? I'd love to take credit for any good you see in this church since I've been here, but really I can't. I can only tell you that I've tried not to get in the way of the Holy Spirit and... The Holy Spirit is the transformative force. God, through the Spirit, we shall know if thou within us shine and sound with all thy saints below the depths of love divine. We have been talking, among the leadership especially, about the vision for this church. And this is where I'm going to close today. We've talked about the vision for this church in the future. And I asked a question several months ago in the sermon that really got quite a profound response. I was surprised by it. I simply said, if this church was gone tomorrow, would anybody in this community notice? If Shiloh wasn't here anymore, would anybody notice? And it really stirred some people up. And from that stirring... 
I proposed a vision statement that was really straightforward with the help of the Holy Spirit, no doubt. Let's just be vital to the well-being of this community. Let's just make sure that people are really glad we're here. Not because of who we are, but because of the love of the one from whom we come. Not because of what we do, but because of the love and the grace that is expressed through what we do. The love of the Father. It's a missionary kind of spirit that we would go into a world that doesn't know us and doesn't know our God. And we would do acts of love and mercy, good things that help people with their problems. And then in the forging of relationships around the solving of problems and the ordering of chaos, we might demonstrate so effectively the love of God that they would want to know our God. And all the while, the Holy Spirit is at work. How would that be? And so our vision for the future in this church is to be not just a Pentecost church, not a church filled with the Holy Spirit, but a church where every deed and every word is the exemplification of the love of God at work in us and in and around the world where the Holy Spirit is uninhibited. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for the compelling power of your word and your spirit. Now change our lives and our natures, we pray, by the same Holy Spirit. For those who are ready to really open their hearts to you, Lord, I pray that they might receive your loving forgiveness and then their spirits might be born again. For those who have been born again, but for whom the spirit has been restricted, I pray an opening. Well, God, we don't understand why, but you give us the will to reject you. And so we ask that you soften our hearts, that you demonstrate anew how surrendering our will invites your spirit and changes everything. Amen.